Good morning, beautiful family. How are we? Good, good, good. Hey, I love y'all. Uh, I'm saying that at the start and the end of the sermon today. Uh, so yeah, it's really good to be here with you guys. Uh, we survived the winter polar vortex earlier this week. All right, now it's hot in this mug. All right, so uh, I saw all y'all with y'all's obligatory snow pictures. All right, it snowed like a quarter of a millimeter, and I saw dudes out there making Olaf and stuff, you know, so uh, I feel you, uh, but we off of the gram, right? Do it off of the gram, um, but it's good to be here this morning. Um, hey, I want to, real quick, I want to catch us up with where we are uh, in this series. We're in the middle of 2 Timothy, and I kind of want to bring us up to speed with uh, what's going on in the text, in this book. So we've been looking at this from a torch-receiving sort of book. Paul is writing to Timothy, a young pastor, and he's kind of passing the torch or passing the baton to Timothy. And rather than seeing it as a baton-passing letter, we really want to see it as a baton-receiving letter that we, as a young church and uh, as mostly uh, young individuals, what does it look like to actually receive, to be entrusted with the gospel and to carry that out into ministries and into peoples and into our workplaces and our neighborhoods around us? And so what does it look like to be faithful to the gospel ministry and to the call of God on our life is really what we're hitting on. And so in a lot of ways, it feels like God has kind of passed the torch to us as a church here in this city that we would be part of the movement of God, of pushing back darkness around us. And so how do we actually be faithful with that and uh, be consistent in the way in which we're exalting our King Jesus? How do we highlight Christ as individuals? And then how do we highlight Christ corporately, being faithful to the gospel? So the first week we looked at the structure of the letter and really kind of what does it mean to take the torch? And I had a torch and I almost burned down Campbell, if y'all remember that, all right? Don't tell Martin that, okay? In fact, he erased that from the sermon notes, all right? But uh, we looked at each of us kind of taking responsibility responsibility and really fanning into flame the gift that God has given you. In other words, each of us has something that God has given us. How do you fan it into flame? How do you make it larger? How do you uh, move with more impact? The next week we looked at one of the ways we do that is we accept our call that all of us have been called by God into something, and we have to accept that, embrace that, to begin to walk in that and to fan into flame. But if we accept the call, then suffering will likely come because of it, because for the Christian, there is suffering. And so then the next week, Adam looked at what does it mean to endure for the gospel? We need to carry this on for the long run, not just be excited when we're 22, but still be faithful when we're 82. And how do we do that? It takes endurance. And within that, part of that endurance is we need to not just endure, but entrust to the next generation. And so how do we entrust the gospel message to people that are around us? Discipleship, passing the baton ourselves as well. And then last week, Juhan looked at the idea of us actually being approved by God and using our speech and using our position to be used by God in beautiful ways. What does it look like to be a vessel of God for honorable use, not for dishonorable? honorable use. And today, we're going to kind of continue this trend, that if we're to impact eternity, if we're to be used by God in mighty ways, collectively and individually for the glory of God, what does this look like? What is important here? How do we do this? How do we run with the torch that it feels like God is placing in our hands? So if you have your Bibles, grab them. Second Timothy chapter 3 is where we'll be this morning. 
If you do not have a Bible, uh, the ushers are going to come forward right now, and if you would just raise your hand, they would love to give you a Bible. Um, if you uh, do not own one, I would encourage you, raise your hand, take, keep that. That's our gift to you. We want you to have the Word, and so uh, no shame in needing the Word. We want you to be able to have it, so raise your hand. Keep that, whether you want to read along or take that home. You can also follow along on your smartphone. Uh, in the YouVersion app, there is notes and all the scriptures and stuff like that. You can also take the link and put it into your browser. That's on the screens beside me. Uh, we say this every week. We want your eyes on the Word, especially in texts like this. We want you to be able to see the Scripture and to uh, interact with the Scripture. My words are worthless. The Scripture's words are eternal, and they bring life to us. And so as we sit in the Word, I want it to stir up our affections for our King and who our King is. And so would encourage you to just walk along with us. Amen? All right, here we go. 2 Timothy chapter 3. I'm going to pick it up in verse 1. It says, But understand this. That in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid these dudes. You're like, oh man, we finna get rebuked this morning. You right, all right, so what's happening here, okay? How is it that Paul kind of goes on a you get a sin, you get a sin Oprah rants to start off this? Like, like, what is he doing here? Why is he highlighting all of these different sins? Well, there's several things that are happening, okay? Primarily, though, in order for Timothy to run this race, to take the baton and to run it well, he must realize that there will be opposition to the gospel, and there will be opposition not just externally of the gospel, but even internally in his own heart and soul, there will be opposition to the gospel message. There will be sin that wants to distract him and detour him for, from what God is calling him into. And so Paul is warning Timothy in a lot of ways, there will be many negative examples that will prevent the word of God from multiplying, that will prevent disciples from being made, that will prevent the fanning into flame. In fact, there are many things that won't fan into flame, it will try to snuff out the flame of God that he has given you. And we must be weary of this and watch out for this. If we're to carry the gospel forward, we have to realize that sin is around us at every corner, trying to trip us up and trying to suffocate the good that God has given to us. It tries to make us captive by sin's power. If you are to be used by God, then you have to kill sin and hate sin, period. If you're to be used by God, you have to kill the sin that is within you, and you have to hate the sin that is within you. And you have to do this with ferocity and with aggression and with endurance. You got to put your boxing gloves on. Bring your knife out if you're from the hood or the country, all right? I fought dirty. I don't care, all right? Like, you got to be willing to fight within this. Now, it doesn't say to, like, hate the people that are in the sin. Paul just said in the couple verses before that we correct opponents with gentleness. And so it's not saying that we hate these sinful uh, 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 people that are kind of walking in this sin, but rather we realize the destructiveness of sin and we hate sin. 
that we avoid it. We watch out for it. See, verse 1, it says that we should be careful when there are people that are interacting in these sinful patterns continually because we have to realize the destructiveness of sin. You see, sin, it's dangerous, it's destructive, and it's deceitful. And oftentimes, we don't realize that. You see, Hebrews 3, 13 says, Do not neglect to meet together, as is the habit of some, so that none of you will become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Translation, sin is more tricky than you are godly. Don't be tripping. You need to begin to realize this. And for a lot of us, I don't think we believe that truth. And so then we begin drowning in an ocean of sin before we even realize we were wading in the water of sin in the first place. You see, sin can root itself in our heart. It is tricky, it is deceitful, and it is dangerous, and it is destructive. And Paul is telling Timothy, if you are to run this race for the long haul, then you have to realize that sin will be around every corner trying to snuff out the mission of God, and you have to hate it and put it to death. And you have to watch out for it even in others. This list, if read in the Greek, it's a repetition of sound and rhythmic devices that kind of sharpen the impact of it. So if I was reading it in Greek, it would sound like I was rapping almost. And Paul does that because he's trying to show the serious nature of sin and how to avoid it. That if Timothy is to be used by God, he must hate it and put it to death. Paul goes into, in verse 1 to Timothy, and he says, hey, understand this. In other words, put t time towards thinking about the reality of sin he says in the last days, it'll actually get worse and worse. Now the last days, Acts chapter 2, verse 17, Peter says that this is the last days, and that time just refers to the time that Christ resurrected and until he comes back again. And so we are living right now in the last days. So it's been the last days for the past 2,000 years, not last like it's about to end, last like this is the last thing that's going to happen until Christ reigns forever with us on earth. And so we're living in the last days, and Paul is saying, look, in the last days, sin will be running wilder and wilder, and you have to do work to actually understand or to think about it because it is deceitful by its nature. So if you don't think about the impacts of sin, if you don't spend time trying to understand this, sin is more tricky than you are godly. Well, community church. And if you don't try to understand it, then it will grab hold of you and you won't even realize it, family of God. And so we have to think about this. See, like, here's my concern. How often do you really spend time thinking about sin and the seriousness of it? Like, do you ever think about how sin ruins your life? Like, how dangerous it actually is? Like, the sin that you think is kind of cute, how it actually is destroying things around you? Like, do you actually meditate on it? Paul's telling Timothy, you have to think about it. And see, we like to feel good, so we don't like to think about things that won't leave us feeling good, but it's really helpful in order to feel good. We have to realize the dangers that will prevent our joy. And this is one of the dangers, the biggest danger that prevents us being used by God and finding joy in God. It is sin. And if you don't think about it, if you don't hate it, then it will creep up on you. See, chances are you tend to think a little about the sin and the consequences of sin. In fact, when I was reading that, you probably didn't think much about those words because you probably didn't really think they were describing you, right? So you probably just read right over them because you ain't out here killing cats, you know? Ain't nobody got a hide day kids, hide day wife when you around. And so you think then you're good, right? You think you got this under wraps, but really though? Like, do you really? Paul lists out 19 things there, 
And as I instinctively, I have to look at the 19 things he described, I realize that uh, instinctively, I actually struggle with eight of these 19 things. Like instinctive. I don't even have to try to do this. It's not like I'm trying to live in sin. It's like it's within me. It's within my very nature to walk in some of these sins. And I realize that like eight of the 19, like that's almost half, right? Like of these sins that Paul is mentioning that I naturally want to walk into, oftentimes I even walk into it without even realizing I was in it in the first place. Y'all look at the list again like, oh, I wonder which ones. Mind your business, player. Worry about your own sin, dog, all right? Oh, lover of self, check. Just kidding, right? No, but we actually need each other. So I say that for accountability. Like we need each other, but we also have to be self-aware. And we have to realize the sin that is within us and be accountable to God and to each other. Listen, what Paul is doing in verses 1 through 9, which we'll get through the next couple in a second, is he's highlighting the negative examples. And what he's telling Timothy is we have to watch out for negative examples. We have to be, live out the gospel, negative example of others around us and even in our own life. If we're to live out the gospel, make an eternal impact, actually impact the generations that come after us, then we have to be careful not to uh, fellowship with and then be drug into the same sin of the world around us. Now, does this mean avoid people? No, we just said that. Chapter 2, verse 25 says, correct opponents with gentleness. And in order to correct somebody, you have to be close enough to them to know what to correct in the first place. And so it's not saying to avoid people. That's not what it's saying at all. But it does say we got to be watchful for it. We have to be careful because the deceitfulness of sin will have us captured in it before we even realize that we were around it in the first place. you got to understand this. you got to be watchful. You have to watch out in this way. You have to realize that sin ruins people and not follow that negative example and allow it to ruin you. Listen, sin ruins the mission of God because sin ruins people and people are the mission of God. And so sin will end up ruining the people around you and if you actually care about people, you will hate the sin that is around them. Maybe you're still not tracking with this in your own life, but just think about it from your family's life. Like most of us, we probably grew up products of sin in a lot of ways. Maybe your parents got divorced or you saw abuse in the house or you saw things that even if you did not actively engage in those things, because there was sin around you, you were still impacted. You were cut up by sin. And so we, by our very nature, can realize if we think about it that sin is destructive. We have to be able to, but even to the people around us as we participate in that. We have to be able to realize the impact and the, the, the nature of sin here that Paul is kind of highlighting of these. The fact that I can look at this and say, man, I really struggle with eight of these things. Y'all, that ain't cute. I ain't saying that like, oh, look at this. No, that ain't cute. This will end up destroying and derailing ministry for me, and it will end up destroying and derailing ministry for you and others around you if you do not watch out for sin in your life, family of God. It will end up crippling the things that God is actually calling you towards. We have to watch out for the destructive nature of sin. You see, if we're not careful, we could throw away everything and derail everything just because we allow sin to reign in our life. And we have to realize that often this is exampled and it's modeled in the people around us without even realizing it. Because we have to be careful realizing what we're being influenced by. For example, growing up, when I was growing up, uh, I wanted to be either a rapper, a drug lord, or an NFL player. Why? Why? Because that was my example. You see, I grew up in the inner city. 
And so while you had awesome examples, I have no examples. And when I was being told that making money is the reason why we live and it's the reason for my existence, the only people that I saw around me that were making money were those three things, those three groups of people. And so already I'm believing in the lie that making money is the reason why I exist. And then the only people that I can see that make money are those three people. So you either grew up having to spit or you grew up having to slang or you grew up having to be a really good athlete. And that was my example that I had to mimic and to imitate and to model. Those were the only people that made money. And so because I wasn't a hooper, I went and I began to pursue football. Now, I say that, okay, even though I could still work Osagi or Adam on the court, all right? So don't, don't be tripping. I'll do you, Michael. Don't be tripping, dog, all right? Adam likes to point out that uh, he beat me in a game of one-on-one, seven to nothing, which is true, he did. He neglects to say that we played two out of three and I end up winning two out of three, so, all right? <laughs> Lover of self, check, okay, but... Right? Example is so important, right? Like, that's the example I was following. Listen, what example are you following, family? Like, do you believe that the reason you're here on this earth is to make money? Because if that's the case, then what you're believing in is that uh, for the next 60 years, you have value, but then after that, you have absolutely no value because your money ain't going with you when you die. And so if that's the reality of why you are existing, then your existence is meant for a fleeting 60 years. That does not feel like what God has created us for. But if you begin to model and mimic examples that go beyond that, not become a lover of money, but become a lover of others, then you begin to have a vision for something far greater than 60 years. See, you were made to actually impact eternities, family. You were made to carry legacies into the next generation. Do you believe that? Or even though you're a believer, are you still being influenced by the world around you that says your reason for existence is to make money and have a good time? Because if that's what you think, then your existence will be fleeting and you'll feel it one day when you've achieved what you thought you should and you're not satisfied still. You see, Paul is warning us. It's heavy, I know, it's weighty because Paul's wanting us to not fall captive to sin's nature. Now, you may still be thinking, right? Like, man, I'm good, I got this. Like, like I'm not here while I'm. Look, y'all, sin is not just people that live good. You see, that's verses uh, two through five there are people that kind of live good. And that's the first negative example that you have to watch out for are these people that just kind of do whatever they want to do and it looks like they're living the good life. They're kind of free, they say. They're doing what they want to do. But sin is not just destructive. Remember, it's also deceitful. So not only do these examples uh, look good or live good, but they also look good is the next part. You see, sometimes they're out here reckless, and that's cool, and sometimes we're like, hey, I ain't doing that. I can avoid that. But you see, verse 5 actually says that some of them have the appearance of godliness. So it actually looks like they're living a godly life. They look good, but in reality, they're still not examples to follow because underneath their outward appearance is an internal heart that is corrupted by the deceitfulness of sin. We have to watch out for that, Paul says. I mean, even just this week, we are a part of an association where uh, one of the leaders, a, a big name leader in ministry, ended up being removed from his position because underneath all of the things that were going on, all this external glory that we saw and all this awesome teaching that we heard, where was reports that he was actually abusive to his staff team. That or not physically, verbally and emotionally, there was uh, this abuse that was going on. And so he was uh, prideful and arrogant, as we see there in verse 2. And he got removed from it. 
See, he allowed sin to begin to reign in his life, and if the reports are true, then he just never got it checked, and he kind of thought that he was above the scriptures, and because of that, his ministry got derailed. See, he looked good, but there wasn't true transformation underneath. We have to be careful of that, family of God. All of us can fall captive to that, unless you think you're just so much more godly than what the scriptures actually proclaim. See, we need Jesus. And if we don't tell ourselves that, if we don't think to understand that often, then you will be deceived by sin, family. And it will end up derailing, and you'll be captive to its, uh, to its, its ploys in a lot of ways. And so we can all fake it, right? All of us, we in fact probably came in here this morning stunting some. Like we can all fake it in ways. We have to be willing to see the reality of sin in our life. Which sin, family of God, has impregnated your heart and is growing that you are tempted to give birth to? Because if you do that, it will grow up and it will kill you in the end. That's what James 1 says. And so we have to watch out for this. It will destroy you. It is a cancer that you have to get rid of. If you want to be used by God, and if you want to live a joy-filled life, then sin has to die. You have to hate sin. You have to not desire anything that has to do with sin because you realize that there's something more before you. Are you killing sin? Because if not, then sin is killing you. There are no middle grounds there. Either you are killing sin or sin is killing you. And if you're passive, sin is killing you. It's just too deceitful for you to realize it in the moment. You'll realize it 25 years from now. We have to be careful of this. Paul is kind of putting weight on us because he wants Timothy to be used by God, to feel the joy of God, to walk in his calling and ministry. But in order to do that, he has to see the impact of sin. All of us will end up submitting to something. Will we either submit to the holiness and the beauty of God, or we will submit to the destruction of sin? One will be for our joy, one will be for our ruin. But the trick is they actually both look the same in the beginning. You see, that's what Paul goes into next in verses 6 through 9. He says this, For among them, these people who kind of have the appearance of godliness, but they deny its power, they kind of look godly, but they're actually not. It says, From among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janes and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. So not only do negative examples live good, and not only do they look good, but they also sound good, is the third piece. These people, they're teaching truths that do not align with the Bible, and so they sound good. The reason I'm saying this is that Paul is specifically addressing some false teachers in that context. He's writing to Timothy, who was in the church of Ephesus, and in that church there were people that were trying to proclaim a gospel that was different than the one that Paul was preaching. And so that's why they always are looking at a knowledge of the truth that says there, but there's no power behind what they're doing because they're not preaching the reality of the gospel. They're trying to convert people to a false religion, and we know that from the historical context. Now, two things here before we dive in. One, firstly, weak women could seem like an offensive comment. 
okay, but it's not, all right? Uh, in that culture, women who were widowers or those who uh, were single or that had poverty, they were not protected and free the way that we often are in, as Americans, and so they were unable to provide for themselves. And so because the men would try to dominate them, if they were widowers or if they were in poverty, they would often end up using and even abusing them, and they did not have the same freedom that we have today. So Paul doesn't call women weak. What he highlights is women who are in weak situations. And so he highlights women who are struggling in different ways. And what was happening in that context was there were these men that were coming in, and they were beginning to spread lies to the women, telling them that they were offering them liberty and freedom, but in the end ended up converting them to a false religion that had to do with sex prostitution and that that was a form of worship. And so they were ending up just kind of using them for their own physical desires in the first place. And Paul is calling these people little boys, essentially. So he's not saying that the women are weak, per se. He's saying there are women in weak situations, but really there are these passive, pathetic men that are taking advantage of it. Paul isn't on the women here. He's actually on the men that are doing these things. And hello, ain't the same kind of true in our culture, too? There are many little boys who, rather than looking at a woman and seeing the value and the dignity and the beauty that is within her and trying to elevate her, her toward the beauty and the love of Christ, they end up using her for nothing more than their own physical desires. Paul rebukes that mess, and we do too. I see a woman snapping over there. I got you, girl. <laughs> All right, we can't be captive to that. But listen, sometimes it'll be pitched as good, isn't it? Like it'll be pitched as this mutual benefit as if following this path actually brings you life when in reality it does nothing but destroy you in the end. But because we don't spend enough time understanding it or thinking about it, we get captive to the deceitfulness of sin. And we have to watch out for that is what Paul is saying here. And so this is what Paul is doing. These men, they don't arrive at truth. They teach things that sound good, but in reality, they're lies. They're tricking people in the process so that they can try to get what they want. And in our culture where truth is so relative, and you can kind of believe whatever you want to believe, we are actually, uh, without uh, realizing it, usually captive by the same thing. What Paul was mentioning here, Janies and John Breeze, they were the uh, Egyptian magicians who opposed Moses. So if you're familiar with the Exodus story, when Moses came in and said, let my people go, the first thing that they did was uh, Moses took his staff and he threw it down and it turned to a snake. But then Janies and John Breeze, they were the two magicians, they took their staffs and they threw them down, they turned to snakes too. So what is Paul doing here? He's saying, look, both of them actually had what an appearance of the same outcome. And so he's saying, look, it's not always as clear. It's not always as night and day. You have to realize that sometimes truth sounds good. It actually even looks almost the exact same, but the power behind those two things are different. And what we see with Moses is his snake ended up eating the other two magician's snakes, which I would have loved to see that. It's kind of a about it, about it moment, you know? Like, yeah, get at me now, dog, right? And so he eats the snakes, and there's power behind his, but in, in origin, they actually look the same. And we could be fallen and taken captive by the same thing, too, because we are living in a culture where sometimes our truths sound the same, but the origin is totally different, and the outcome is totally different as well if we're not careful. For example, one of the lies that we see in our culture is, hey, actually, we're here, like, we just want to love on people, and is it true for you, is true for you, is true for me, is true for me, that's good, as long as our truth doesn't hurt anybody. And there's actually truth to that. Like, as Christians, we would say we're here for the benefit of other people around us. 
Our truth should be for the flourishing and for the good of somebody else. The problem, they look the exact same by, by just language, but the origin and the outcome is different. Because see, in the culture's lies, what they're telling you is, you know what, just do whatever feels good to you, as if what feels good to you doesn't end up destroying people around you. If you stop and if you think about it, you realize that these truths are actually totally different. You see, the Christian truth says we actually lay our lives down for the sake of somebody around us, whereas that truth says just do what feels good to you. That truth is selfish. This truth is sacrificial. Which one are you following? We have to think about that and understand these things. They look the same. They sound the same even. But Paul's telling Timothy, we have to watch out for this. When the world says to love people, what they're mistaking is that often that love leads to slavery. It leads to greater and greater sin. If you do what feels right for you, it often corrupts your soul in the end. A lot of you know that because you've experienced that. I've experienced that in my life before pursuing Christ. And so upon just listening, they sound the same, but in the one end, one is fake and it ends up being ruined, and one leads to liberation and joy. We'll get into this a little bit more next week, but this is where teaching truth and submitting to the word is so important. To stay aligned with the scriptures and aligned with the gospel, this is where our liberation comes, family. Paul then concludes the text like this in verse 10. He says, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim of life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from all of them the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So evil people, verses 2 through 4, and impostors, verse 5, will go from bad to worse, deceiving, verses nine through, or 6 through 9, and being deceived. Paul gives us his outline there. They live good, they look good, they sound good is where we get that from. And we have to watch out for that, right? Paul, next week, will tell us how to avoid this. But this week, what Paul does is he sets himself up as a positive example. Timothy has seen Paul's life. He's seen the outcome of his life. He's seen him do this for the long run, and he's been able to see that even though Paul is suffering, in fact, he's about to get beheaded because of the faith, he realizes that there was joy in Paul's life and good in people around him in the long run. Very simply put, we're not going to go into deep explanation here. In fact, you can use it in community groups this week if you want. But what Paul is doing is everybody's sin in verses 2 through 5, the 19 sins that are mentioned, all of those are sins that you think about yourself first and then think about others around you. But Paul, in his conduct in life, he always thought about others first and tried to lift them up. And so sin ends up being selfish, whereas godliness ends up being sacrificial for the sake of somebody else. And Paul is telling Timothy that he should not only watch out for negative examples, but the second thing he's saying is, look, you need to mimic and model my example. So our second point here, to mimic and model the example of Paul, that as I laid my life down for others, you see the glory, the beauty, the good that comes out of that. And this is where Paul is highlighting that you are created to love God and love your neighbor. So when you do that, guess what? You come alive, family. Where you love yourself, you die because that's not what you were created for. You were created to love God and then to love others. Is this the model of your life? Or is your life self-focused? If it's self-focused, you're not following the teachings of Scripture, you're following the teachings of your culture. 
and we're probably being deceived and it's a deceitfulness and it sounds good but it actually leads to our ruin in the end and we have to be careful for that so Paul's saying here that he's doing whatever it takes to spread the gospel into people's hearts in fact what he says is those who try to live godly those who even at times oppose the negative examples and we say that's not good that's not for our joy they'll actually face persecution this is actually to be expected we should know this as Christians. It is part of the DNA of coming into the faith. For example, a different analogy, last week was the Super Bowl, and we saw Patrick Mahomes take the Chiefs and uh, take them to win the Super Bowl title because, you know, light skin magic. <laughs> we taking over the world, baby. Come on, all right? But uh, what happened there is, uh, even earlier in the season, he got hurt, okay? Because football players, they actually just kind of expect to get hurt because that's part of what they sign up for. Or maybe another way, from an analogy a couple of weeks ago, soldiers, they expect to be shot at because that's part of what they're signing up for. Now, they don't want to be shot at. NFL players don't want to be hurt, but they know that part of actually following the gospel or part of following their calling is that those things might happen. And for us, part of following the gospel, we have to realize that we don't want suffering, we don't want persecution, but that's what we're signing up for when we sign our name under the blood of Jesus that you're signing up for persecution, for suffering, for hard times. We should expect it, not even be surprised by it. Now listen, that doesn't mean we love it. Listen, in eternity, there will be no more suffering. There will be no more persecution. That's what we long for. So the longing not to suffer is okay, but in the meantime, while we're living in the brokenness of this world, that brokenness will rub up against it, especially when we're going trying to push back darkness. Don't think that's easy. Darkness will push back and try to hurt you. Are you willing to do that? Are you signing up for that? Are you walking in the reality of that? Christians should expect hardships and persecutions at times. When you live for God and others, you can expect that not all the time will there be appreciation for this. The world is not our home. Satan is our enemy. Your own flesh doesn't like when you try to put it to death and allow Christ to reign in you. So you will face suffering and persecution. When you're thinking biblically, even when you're trying to love people, sometimes because you are warning them about the sin that they're in, they will receive that as if you hate them, and they will push back against that. And we have to realize the reality of that, that this is the world that we live in, but we care for them. We, we don't want them to experience the negative uh, impact of sin, so we try to walk right in there, knowing that sometimes there will be hostility given in return. This is what it means to be a Christian. And Paul is telling Timothy, preach the gospel. Watch out for sin in your own life. Watch out that you don't follow in those other examples and begin to mimic and model this life of sacrifice for the sake of others. If you're to carry the torch, Timothy, if you're to lead your church into effective ministry, then you have to realize that uh, this is going to happen. And if we are to run with the torch in our own individual lives and in the lives around us, we have to realize that sin is around every corner wanting to choke the life out of you. Satan is not just sitting passively on the sideline he hates you and you have to realize this and your own flesh does not want to be put to death so that Christ might reign in you you have to realize this it's hard doing life with Christ if we're to carry the torch though we can't be a church that just has dope worship music and just come up in here and be like, oh the worship music is cool or we can't be a diverse church that looks cool in a in a homogeneous ethnocentric monolithic city how you really feel though. <laughs> we can't even just have vibrant mission. 
right, and that be that kind of the crux, we also have to be a people that hate sin and that kill it. Are you waging war against the sin that is waging war against your soul? Or are you a passive standby, watcher by? If you do that, it will destroy you, family of God. Sin is more tricky than you are godly. It is more dangerous than you are tough. It will come down and choke you out in the end. If we are not careful, we have to watch out for it. And we have to not be the negative examples, but rather mimic and model the example of Paul. But the third point is really how we overcome this sin. And that is that we need to watch and look clearly to our true example, Jesus. You see, not only do we watch out for negative examples, not only do we mimic and model positive behaviors, but we have to believe in the ultimate example, our King Jesus. You see, Jesus was the example of godliness for us. He preached hard truths, but gracious truths. In fact, his truths were so gracious that the woman who was caught in adultery felt like she could sit there and hear the truths of Jesus. Or the woman who was at the well who was caught in habitual sin was able to receive the love of Jesus. It was gracious, yet at the same time, his truth was truthful, and at times people didn't like that, especially the religious leaders. And so the Pharisees would often create hostility. In fact, his truth ended up leading to ultimate persecution, his death on the cross. You see, even in John chapter 6, Jesus is teaching these truths, and as he teaches this truth, one of the things that he says that's hard to hear in that culture is you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. We don't have time to go into why he's saying that today, but he says it 11 times in John chapter 6. And then in John chapter 6, verse 66, 666 is how you can remember it ironically, it says many of his disciples left him. 667, he turns to his other disciples and says, are you going to go too? because he knows this is hard to hear. See, he's gracious, but he's willing to speak truth because he knows that the truth will actually set you free. Not feel-good messages, not, but the reality of the death of sin or of the holiness of God, that this is what creates liberation and joy. And because Jesus is for your eternal joy, sometimes he preaches hard truths that are hard to understand, but he loves you and will walk right into it with a sense of graciousness at the exact same time. You see, Jesus walks that balance. He's our example. He didn't water down the truth, but was gentle. He lived a holy life. He rejected sin and taught others to do the same. He was steadfast. He had deep faith. He didn't just appear godly like Paul did. He actually was godly. He was God himself. And yet, we see Jesus being crucified on the cross as if he committed all 19 of the sins that Paul mentioned in verses 2 through 5 and more. Why? Why does Jesus die like this? Because sin brings death, and that's what you and I deserve. You see, for the eight things I said I wrestle with, or for the two things, or the 19 things that you wrestle with, or whatever it might be, that deserves death. And Jesus is not just our example that we actually follow and we mimic and we model, but he's also our atonement. He's also our substitution. When we believe in him, then he actually gives us his righteousness, family of God. You see, he doesn't just uh, show us a way to live, but he also covers us when we don't live that way. Because all of us struggle with the sins that are mentioned. But Jesus actually took those sins upon him on the cross. And verse 12 says that when you are in Christ, that's what this means, when you are 
connected to Jesus, then he gives you his righteousness. And now you're not just trying to be a good person for morality's sake, but as you believe in the ultimate example, that belief begins to change your heart and you naturally, belief is actually what naturally becomes somebody that is worthy of mimicking and modeling because belief is actually what changes our hearts, not just moral behavior change, family. When we believe in Jesus, then it actually creates a life that's like Paul's, that's like Timothy's, that is worthy of being modeled. We live for more than what is just right in front of us. We live for eternity to come. Your life was made by God to make an eternal impact. And the way that we do that is we kill sin by believing in Jesus. And as we believe in Jesus and he helps us to put those sins to death, then we live a godly life for those around us, family. Do you believe this? Is this the reality of your heart? Do you take time to think about the destructiveness of sin and understand this? Because see, the way you get Jesus is actually through humility. You see, it takes humility to look at verses two through five and say, man, I really struggle with those. It takes humility to confess your sins, both to God and to others. It takes humility to say, you know what? God is more powerful than I am. I need to give my life to him if I'm actually gonna overcome this. If I'm actually going to make a difference, I have to surrender my life to God. It takes humility in verses 6 through 9 to believe in the truth of the gospel, not our own truths that we make up. It takes humility to submit ourselves to the word of God, even when we don't understand it. Y'all, that takes faith. It takes faith to begin to, to walk in the reality of this, family. Do you believe this? That takes humility. It takes humility to be a Christian knowing that you're going to suffer but choosing to walk in that anyway because of the glory that's awa- that awaits you. This takes humility. And when we are humble and we realize, man, sin is destructive, and in fact, I dabble in it all the time. But when we are humble and ask Jesus into our hearts and submit ourselves to his life, then we get the power of God to overcome sin. This is how we make a difference in the city family. This is how you make a difference in your individual life. Listen, we have to be a church that is serious about sin, y'all. We have to be killing sin or sin will be killing you. There is no other option. And if you were to be used by God and walk in the joy that God has for you, take time to understand this. Feel the weight of sin, but at the same time, the unbelievable grace of God that covers that sin. And as you are humble and accept Christ, he changes you and you live a life that's worthy of modeling and mimicking and you make an eternal difference. Your life is worth more than just the next 60 years making some money, family. Your life is worth eternity. Give it to God and he'll use it eternally. I love you guys. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your life. God, help us to kill sin. (laughs) Help us to kill the sin that so easily sneaks into our life without us even realizing it. God, those of us who are struggling with sin this morning, I pray that you would begin to speak to their hearts and let them see that by your blood they can be completely cleansed of their sin. God, for those of us who don't really think that we're struggling, who think we kind of got it all together, who kind of trust in our own selves to bring about our own righteousness, I pray you would convict us of the seriousness of sin, that we wouldn't think we're above it, 
that we would take time to understand it and realize the nature that sin is and the ruining uh, impact it has in our lives. And that we would throw that sin underneath your blood, Jesus. And that by the power of your spirit, we would seek to kill the sin in our lives. God, I pray that you would allow us to be a man and a woman, a people, a church, a family that is serious about sin, that lays it down before you, that exalts the name of who you are. God, I pray for those of us who feel burdened by sin, even right now in a message like this, as Satan comes in and tries to lie to us and tries to tell us that we aren't good enough, would we preach the gospel to our souls? Jesus, feel the weight of that. Would they? Jesus took on that sin and shame, and as people feel the weight of that, would they feel the greater weight of your grace? And Jesus, as we try to ignore it, Holy Spirit, would you not let us ignore it? Would you convict us of the impact of sin, but also of the impact of your righteousness? And God, as a church, as we run forward with your mission, and as individuals, as we run forward with your mission, as we push back darkness, would we be a people that are empowered by your spirit, laying down sin, making war against it, surrendering, submitting to you in the process? We love you, Jesus. We thank you for who you are. We pray these things in your very beautiful name. Amen.